chapter sixteen part one of supplements to the first book second half the doctrine of the abstract idea or thinking from the world as will and idea volume two by arthur schopenhauer translated by r b haldane and j kemp this librivox recording is in the public domain recording by expatriate in bangor maine the doctrine of the idea of perception chapter sixteen on the practical use of reason and on stoicism part one in the seventh chapter i have shown that in the theoretical sphere procedure based upon conceptions suffices for mediocre achievements only while great achievements on the other hand demand that we should draw from perception itself as the primary source of all knowledge in the practical sphere however the converse is the case here determination by what is perceived is the way of the brutes but is unworthy of man who has conceptions to guide his conduct and is thus emancipated from the power of what is actually perceptibly present to which the brute is unconditionally given over in proportion as a man makes good this prerogative his conduct may be called rational and only in this sense can we speak of practical reason not in the kantian sense the inadmissibility of which i have thoroughly exposed in my prize essay on the foundation of morals it is not easy however to let oneself be determined by conceptions alone for the directly present external world with its perceptible reality intrudes itself forcibly even on the strongest mind but it is just in conquering this impression in destroying its illusion that the human spirit shows its worth and greatness thus if incitements to lust and pleasure leave it unaffected if the threats and fury of enraged enemies do not shake it if the entreaties of erring friends do not make its purpose waver and the delusive forms with which preconcerted plots surround it leave it unmoved if the scorn of fools and of the vulgar herd does not disturb it nor trouble it as to its own worth then it seems to stand under the influence of a spirit world visible to it alone and this is the world of conceptions before which that perceptibly present world which lies open to all dissolves like a phantom but on the other hand what gives to the external world and visible reality their great power over the mind is their nearness and directness as the magnetic needle which is kept in its position by the combined action of widely distributed forces of nature embracing the whole earth can yet be perturbed and set in violent oscillation by a small piece of iron if only it comes quite close to it so even a great mind can sometimes be disconcerted and perturbed by trifling events and insignificant men if only they affect it very closely and the deliberate purpose can be for the moment shaken by a trivial but immediately present counter-motive for the influence of the motives is subject to a law which is directly opposed to the law according to which weights act on a balance and in consequence of it a very small motive which however lies very near to us can outweigh one which in itself is much stronger but which only affects us from a distance but it is this quality of the mind by reason of which it allows itself to be determined in accordance with this law and does not withdraw itself from it by the strength of actual practical reason which the ancients denoted by animi impotentia which really signifies ratio regendi voluntatis impotens 
every emotion animi perturbatio simply arises from the fact that an idea which affects our will comes so excessively near to us that it conceals everything else from us and we can no longer see anything but it so that for the moment we become incapable of taking account of things of another kind it would be a valuable safeguard against this if we were to bring ourselves to regard the present by the assistance of imagination as if it were past and should thus accustom our apperception to the epistolary style of the romans yet conversely we are very well able to regard what is long past as so vividly present that old emotions which have long been asleep are thereby reawakened in their full strength thus also no one would be irritated or disconcerted by a misfortune a disappointment if reason always kept present to him what man really is the most needy of creatures daily and hourly abandoned to innumerable misfortunes great and small to de la tatan zoan who has therefore to live in constant care and fear herodotus already says pan esti anthropos sumphora homo totus est calamitas the application of reason to practice primarily accomplishes this it reconstructs what is one-sided and defective in knowledge of mere perception and makes use of the contrasts or oppositions which it presents to correct each other so that thus the objectively true result is arrived at for example if we look simply at the bad action of a man we will condemn him on the other hand if we consider merely the need that moved him to it we will compassionate him reason by means of its conceptions weighs the two and leads to the conclusion that he must be restrained restricted and curbed by a proportionate punishment i am again reminded here of seneca's saying civis tibi omnia subicere se te subice rationi since however as was shown in the fourth book the nature of suffering is positive and that of pleasure negative he who takes abstract or rational knowledge as the rule of his conduct and therefore constantly reflects on its consequences and on the future will very frequently have to practise sustine et abstine for in order to obtain the life that is most free from pain he generally sacrifices its keenest joys and pleasures mindful of aristotle's ophronimos to alupan dioke uto idu quod dolore vacat non quod suave est persequitur vir prudens therefore with him the future constantly borrows from the present instead of the present borrowing from the future as is the case with a frivolous fool who thus becomes impoverished and finally bankrupt in the case of the former reason must for the most part assume the role of a churlish mentor and unceasingly call for renunciations without being able to promise anything in return except a fairly painless existence this rests on the fact that reason by means of its conceptions surveys the whole of life whose outcome in the happiest conceivable case can be no other than what we have said when this striving after a painless existence so far as it might be attainable by the application of and strict adherence to rational reflection and acquired knowledge of the true nature of life was carried out with the greatest consistency and to the utmost extreme it produced cynicism from which stoicism afterwards proceeded 
i wish briefly here to bring this out more fully for the sake of establishing more firmly the concluding exposition of our first book all ancient moral systems with the single exception of that of plato were guides to a happy life accordingly in them the end of virtue was entirely in this life not beyond death for to them it is only the right path to a truly happy life and on this account the wise choose it hence arise those lengthy debates chiefly preserved for us by cicero those keen and constantly renewed investigations whether virtue quite alone and in itself is really sufficient for a happy life or whether this further requires some external condition whether the virtuous and wise may also be happy on the rack and the wheel or in the bull of phalaris or whether it does not go as far as this for certainly this would be the touchstone of an ethical system of this kind the practice of it must give happiness directly and unconditionally if it cannot do this it does not accomplish what it ought and must be rejected it is therefore with truth and in accordance with the christian point of view that augustine prefaces his exposition of the moral systems of the ancients de civitas dei book nineteen chapter one with the explanation exponenda sunt nobis argumenta mortalium quibus sibi ipsi beatudinem facere in huius vitae infelicitate moliti sunt ut ab eorum rebus vanis spes nostra quid differat clarescat definibus bonorum et malorum multa inter se philosophie disputarunt quam questionem maxima intentione versantes invenire conati sunt quid efficiat hominem beatum illud enim est finis bonorum i wish to place beyond all doubt the eudaimonistic end which we have ascribed to all ancient ethics by several express statements of the ancients themselves aristotle says in the ethica magna one four e eudaimonia ento en zin esti to de eu zin en to kata tas aretas zin felicitas in bene vivendo posita est verum bene vivere est in eo positum ut secundum virtutum vivamus with which may be compared nam cum ea causa impulerit eos qui primis se ad philosophiae studia contulerunt ut omnibus rebus post habitis totos se in optimo vitae statu exquirendo collocarent profecto spe beate vivendi tantam in eo studio curam operamque posuerunt according to plutarch chrysippus said tocata cacian zinto cacodaimonos zin tauton esti that is vitiose vivere idem est quod vivere infelicitur ibid ephronisis uh eteran estitis eudaimonia cath eauto aludaimonia that is prudentia nihil differt a felicitate estque ipsa 
adeo felicitas tell us de facin enai to eudaimonen u eneca panta pratetai that is finem esse dicunt felicitatem cuius causa fiunt omnia eudaimonian sunonumen to tele legusi that is finem bonorum et felicitatem synonima esse dicunt i areti tautin ehe epagelian eudaimonian poisae that is virtus profitetur se felicitatem praestare ceterum sapientia ad beatum statum tendit iloducit ilovias aperit illud ad maneo auditionem philosophorum lectionemque ad propositum beatae vitae trahendum the ethics of the cynics also adopted this end of the happiest life as the emperor julian expressly testifies tis cunicis de philosophias scopos men esti kai telas osper dicai passis philosophias to eudaimoniain to de eudaimoniain en to zin kata fusin ala mi pros tas ton holon doxas that is cynicae philosophiae ut etiam omnis philosophiae scopus et finis est filiciter vivere filicitas vitae autem in eo posita est et secundum naturam vivatur nec vero secundum opiniones multitudinis only the cynics followed quite a peculiar path to this end a path directly opposed to the ordinary one the path of extreme privation they start from the insight that the motions of the will which are brought about by the objects which attract and excite it and the wearisome and for the most part vain efforts to attain these or if they are attained the fear of losing them and finally the loss itself produce far greater pain than the want of all these objects ever can therefore in order to attain to the life that is most free from pain they chose the path of the extremest destitution and fled from all pleasures as snares through which one was afterwards handed over to pain but after this they could boldly scorn happiness and its caprices this is the spirit of cynicism seneca distinctly expresses it in the eighth chapter de tranquillitate animi cogitandum est quanto levior dolor sit non habere quam perdere et intelligemus paupertati eo minorem tormentorum quo minorum damnorum esse materiam then tolerabilius est faciliusque non acquirere quam amittere diogenes effecit nequid sibi eripi posset qui se fortuitis omnibus exuit videtur mihi dixisse agetum negotium fortuna nihil apu diogenem iam tuum est the parallel passage to this last sentence is the quotation of stobaeus in eclogues two seven diagenis effi nomizein oran tin tuchin 
enorosan auton kai legusan tutan du dunamai zalein kuna lucitira that is diogenes credere se dixit videre fortunam ipsum intuentem ipsum intuentem ac dicentem aut hunc non potui tetigise canem rabiosum the same spirit of cynicism is also shown in the epitaph on diogenes in suidas under the word philiscas and in diogenes laertius six two girasque men calcos upo cronu alason uti cudas opas aion diogenes cathele munas epe viotis autarchia doxan edexas thnitois caesonis oiman elafrotatin that is aira quidem absumit tempus sed tempore numquam enteritura tua est gloria diogenes quando quidem ad vitam miseris mortalibus aequam monstrata est facilis te duce et ampla via End of chapter 16, part 1, recording by Expatriate in Bangor, Maine.